Welcome to an ultra geeky edition of ARG Presents. I'm your good pal, your bosom chum, Amigo Aaron, joined by a man that beamed in directly from the dark side. I give you the Brent. I think you're mixing your your uh, your star shows there, Aaron. That's right, buddy. <laughs> so how's it going this week, the Brent? I, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Oh, I'm super Although duper. I, I... So last week, uh, if you missed the show... For God's sakes, go back and watch it. Please, we're begging you. <laughs> we, you can be one of the two that have. That's right. But we did spin a wheel. You may have heard of it. We made a deal, an exciting deal, a geeky deal. Almost some would say a fan service deal, but we're fans, so we couldn't help ourselves. And this week, we'll be doing, bam, TV tie-in games, the Brent. TV tie-in games. Now, what does this mean? Well, this means games that were based on television shows, uh, television shows from all the uh, retro eras. Gosh, there were plenty of uh, shows to choose from that had games, but not as many as I thought. The Brit, as I started going through a list of these things, when I say that, when I say TV tie-in games, which games popped into your mind instantly? Uh, the Adams Family. That's uh, really yeah. The pinball or the video? Yes, both. I, I mean, here's the thing. You put the restriction on that it had to be live action. Yeah, because we we'd done a cartoon game previously that was a TV, TV tie-in, which, which instantly cut the uh, the possible games well in more than half. I mean, probably cut it by two thirds. Right. So it became a bit of a challenge to find something that was, uh, you know, on topic and had some merit worth of discussion. Right. I really, really wanted to do Fonz, which was a 1976 arcade game, the first ever television tie-in video game or really? arcade game. Yeah. And uh, it was, was that a, a was that a mo yeah, motorcycle jumping game? Is that what that it, was? It wasn't a jumping game. It was a motorcycle driving game where uh, the technology behind it was is quite fascinating. It doesn't use PCBs. Mm -hmm. It uses you know it's before that kind of tech. It's kind of but it, it it runs into the same problem that Pong has right because Pong technically isn't emulatable. It, it because of the way it works right, and this kind of works off the same the same technology that Pong did, but the the effects, if you watch video of it, and I highly recommend anyone who, who has any interest in this goes and takes a look at it, the effect that it does is amazing. Amazing. The cabinet is full of a fonts arts, of course, fonts from the happy days. And uh, the gameplay, of course, 1976, what do you, you, you can't get much. And it doesn't have much. It's just... Yeah. You drive up and down the screen, and you dodge cars. It's kind of a an ice uh, a uh, behind the shoulder perspective, but it had, I really wanted to talk about that, but I didn't think it was fair because it wasn't something that you could emulate. Is that in so, Mame? I don't sort of like they shoehorned in. They shoehorned in uh, Pong with uh, right. so I assume they would shoehorn that. It's funny. I've never played Fines, but I am familiar with it because. It's one of those games that I see pop up occasionally, and like warehouse raids. So I'm yeah. assuming it sold pretty well back in the day because I see it pop up like on videos, but I've never actually got to play one. I'm not sure I've ever seen one. I must have seen someone playing it because I knew it was motorcycle based, but I don't remember uh, what it was about. That would wouldn't have been the worst choice. And Happy Days was a real popular show here in the states. I don't know if it was internationally famous. I don't. I wonder if the Fonz is known across the pond. I, uh, I, that's a good question that I'm not sure the answer to. Do, do you think people uh, like other people from out the world would care about like 1950s, uh, you know, uh, middle America? Yeah. That history piece from back in the day. So yeah, Picard here is saying in social that they did have that in the UK. There you go. Um, the first thing I thought of, uh, when, when we got those things was some sort of Simpsons game because there's so many to choose from. Now, I, I ended up not picking a Simpsons game because I decided we weren't going to do cartoons. But when the thing first spun the wheel, I thought to myself, what what TV show had the most games? And The Simpsons has got to be up there because it had a ton oh, of it games. absolutely. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, because also, even a, it's got so many games that you, you forgot existed. Simpson Bowling, perfect yeah, example. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, some people in the chat will come up with some good ones. I also thought about Minder. Hermsky mentioned that we did. We covered Minder, which was a, a just a great 
show from the UK. Uh, and uh, so much fun uh, with a great theme. And I like the fact that the lead actor sang the theme. I always like when that happens. Uh, so if you've never watched Minder, and the game, I will say, is unique. Uh, uh, another person in here uh, mentioned uh, Wheel of Fortune, which is that's a yeah, Buck Owens. Those game shows, those were often uh, brought over uh, from the TV. That would count. If you think back to the old Atari uh, VCS, the 2600, you got a lot of games on there that from TV shows like MASH. Uh, you got the A Team, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, Airwolf. Air, well, I don't think Airwolf was Airwolf on the 26th. I don't think it was. Uh, but you did get Airwolf on like the Spectrum. The Spectrum had a bunch of crazy uh, games like Trapdoor uh, comes to mind on the spec. And of course, Minder. There were a lot of neat games uh, to choose from. Street Hawk. That's another one I actually thought about. <laughs> but <laughs> no one knows what Street Hawk is. Knight Rider. My God, it's endless. Uh, Doctor Who, all, all the Doctor Who games are, are the dirt worst, though. So I, <laughs> I wasn't going to go down that road, but Doctor, I did that did pop into my head. Uh, did you? Were there anything aside from Fonz that you thought about before you ultimately chose what you chose? Well, I've been. Uh, <laughs> I actually did a search right on television games, and there are a lot more modern. Uh, tie-in games for video games that I would have ever expected. I I mean, and they're almost all budget tile throwaway things. I didn't want to I didn't want to pick something that I absolutely knew was gonna be crap. So once I flipped through the list long enough, I said, you know what, I'm gonna take a chance on this. Yeah. And uh uh and I kind of stuck to my guns. I once I figured it out, you know, which was fairly early I didn't. I didn't waver. I stuck to my guns on it. There you go. There you go. So, uh, and I, I will say, I, I there was sort of a thought process. I guess we'll go ahead and, and, and get into it here. Uh, I'll I'll go ahead and lead the dance today. There was a there was a thought process as I went through it. I was trying to figure out what to play, and I thought to myself, okay, what TV what will tick people off? No, the most? no, no, no. I, <laughs> now listen, hear me out. I thought to myself, what TV shows do I really like? Okay, and so. The, the first, probably my all-time favorite show, if not tied for first, uh, or maybe a three-way tie, is the is the classic Twilight Zone, Rod Serling's Twilight Zone. Now, Twilight Zone has had a, a, a game made for it, and it's a bad game. It's a, it's not, it's on, a, a, among the places you can find, play it is on the Amiga. It's not a game that is, uh, that I've, I've enjoyed. Uh, and it really doesn't really touch into the series all that much. So I thought to myself, Surely this isn't the only game. It hit me like a bolt of lightning, and it and it occurred to me that the TV tie-in games didn't say video games in there. So you know me, I thought I could I can make this happen. So I chose Bang, Twilight Zone, the Pinball Machine, uh, Twilight Zone, the Pinball Machine, one of the all-time uh, expensive pinball machines, which we'll get into. Yes, it. but I want to talk just a touch on the original show. In case you're not familiar with it, or familiar with its uh, body of work, so the Twilight Zone originally aired October second, nineteen fifty nine, in the states. It ran five seasons. Four of the seasons, of the show was in half hour episodes. Then it was a four season four had one hour episodes. Really changed the dynamic of the show uh, when they did that. Uh, there were one hundred and fifty six episodes made of the original show. Uh, it was produced and created by a man, a great man named Rod Serling. Uh, Rod Serling was a very celebrated writer of his day, uh, having cut his uh, teeth on shows like Playhouse 90 and stuff back in the in the uh, early days of television. He'd written a, show, uh, a very popular play called Requiem for a Heavyweight, which I urge you to go see if you ever get a chance. A great, a great little teleplay. Uh, but Rod was a hot commodity back in the day. And so he decided to go down the road of uh, a fantasy show because one of Rod's pet peeves was that television, they kept wanting to edit and, and censor what he did. And so he thought if he could go down into a realm of fantasy, he could sort of, he could get his message out under the guise of science fiction and horror. And so that's, and that's exactly what he did. Uh, Twilight Zone was an anthology series. Uh, it had a, uh, uh, a great run with all the great uh, writers of the day working on it. All science fiction writers were in there, including guys like Bradbury and whatnot. 
Uh, and Broad Serling wrote a large chunk of the episodes himself. He wrote or co-wrote 92 of the 156 episodes because he was a hot commodity and he knew how to do his own show. Uh, it produced great episodes. I'm sure a lot of people know some of the great episodes that were involved, uh, including episodes like To Serve Man. You know, it's a cookbook. If you've ever seen that one, it's a good life. It's another great one. It's good that you did that, Anthony. That's another great <laughs> one. Uh, time Enough at Last, you know, where poor Burgess Meredith broke his glasses right as he had all the books lined up ready to read. Uh, a, gr a great show. Uh, in 2016, it was ranked uh, number seven on the Rolling Stone Greatest 100 Shows of All Times. In 2002, it was 26 on TV Guide's 50 Greatest Shows of All Time. 2004, it was number eight in the top cult, show, cult shows ever. So I don't have to go into this. And two, two or three of its episodes are ranked in, amongst the top 50 television shows of all time. Not like science fiction shows, just in general. So I, the credits of Twilight Zone are, are out there for you to see. It also won Emmys, Primetime Emmys, Outstanding Writing Achievement in Drama for Serling. He won a couple of those bad boys. It also won Best TV Producer. Again, Rod Serling. So he's made, he's, it was a big show. Did I get that across? A big show. So <clears throat> you would think a show of that caliber would have an awesome video game. Nope, sure don't. But uh, someone had a brain. They're like, you know, we could, we could do something with this license. And the people that had the brain were the people over at WMS. I should get into this real quick in terms of pinball. Williams is WMS. They ended up merging slash purchasing Bally and Midway at the time, Pinwall Divisions. So this is all sort of under their Williams banner, but on the machine, they do a lot of the pinball machines as Bally. So we're going to call this a Bally pinball machine. Anyway, Williams was coming off uh, a, a renaissance of pinball uh, when they decided to go ahead and run with the Twilight Zone uh, the, because... They had just released uh, probably, I would say, arguably the most important pinball machine of the modern era, which was the Adams Family, which Brent yes. sort of mentioned earlier. Uh, this was a offering that came out in 1992. It had the characteristics of a pinball machine that you would expect today, dot matrix display, mini games, uh, all the digitized sound and uh, uh, clips that you would expect from the, from the movie, uh, and was a modern pinball machine. Uh, and it was designed by a guy named Pat Lawler. <clears throat> and this pinball machine ended up selling. It was the most manufactured pinball machine in the history of solid-state pinball machines, still to this day, uh, selling 20,270 units. Ooh. A huge number of modern pinball machines. Uh, I mean, that's just the ability to manufacture the, that many. is quite astounding. So <clears throat> they told Pat Lawler, they said, listen, Pat, you just knocked it out of the park. 10 times like we're making we're actually making money in pinball again because there's a reason why williams owned all these companies they all went broke they were all yeah. boned pinball was dying <laughs> dying on the vine and so they're like basically you saved our bacon how would you like to have carte blanche and he was like yes i would and so carte blanche is the twilight zone twilight zone pinball is what happens when you tell a guy listen do whatever you want he's like he's yeah. like okay and he did and so what he did was he made the most elaborate, the most convoluted insanity machine of all time. <laughs> and you, when you play this machine, you are literally stepping into the twilight zone of pinball because it is absolute madness uh, when you play this. So just to get into it a little bit, into the particulars here, uh, Twilight Zone Pinball uh, came out April of 93. This was on the Midway uh, WPC system. Uh, again, the designer was Pat Lawler. Lawler is like one of the king dog luminaries of pinball. I think you'll agree with me on that, the brand. Yeah. Uh, he was responsible for a ton of games. I'm just going to name some of the bigger ones he did. Of course, he did Adam's Family, which you talked about. He did Safecracker. He did Red and Ted's Roadshow, Funhouse, Whirlwind, Monopoly, Ripley's Believe It or Not, Family Guy, NASCAR, CSI, Roller Coaster Tycoon, and Willy Wonka. He's just, he's just produced for uh, uh, Jersey Jack. Uh, he's he's went he's worked for every major pinball manufacturer. He worked for Williams. He worked for Bally. He worked for Stern, and now he's working for Jersey Jack. So he he's gotten around, uh, as you can imagine. Um, so this was also had other like pinball luminaries that worked on it uh, from back in the day. The artwork on this was done by a guy named John UC. He did a, pretty much all the same machines you just heard. Plus, he also did the art for Star Trek Next Generation, the pinball machine. 
uh, Star Trek 25th Anniversary, Mustang, No Good Gophers, Medieval Madness. And the music guy on this did Simpsons, The Terminators, uh, Taxi. Uh, so you can, if you listen to the sound on this, there are, you can hear that classic sort of, some of the parts of it remind me of Taxi. You also hear some of the uh, special effects in this thing re, like are reused from other machines. And if you know enough about pinball, you can kind of pick them out. I'm sure you've picked out a few there, the brand. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So the back glass on this thing I want to get into straight away is one of the all-time great back glasses in pinball history. Uh, this game, this game's funny. It the the There is a plot to the game, uh, believe it or not. And so it takes place at a curio shop, and you've got to explore Twilight Zone artifacts, this curio shop, to gather and light up the 14 panels that are on a door, a doorway that's on the play field. Uh, that, that includes stuff like uh, uh, the town square. There's a built-in plot, which we'll get into, that's not from the show. You have to light all these panels doing various, uh, you know, missions basically within the game, uh, and that's which was a pretty good angle. And once you light up all the games, you activate like the Mega Wizard mode. Uh, the but the backlash on this sort of shows you that curio shop. It the it features Rod Serling standing in this lit doorway. You just kind of see him looking into this curio shop, and inside the curio shop are tons and tons and tons of references to the TV show. Too many to, to get into here in, in their entirety, but there, there's like at least almost, there's probably 20 references to the show. Yeah. Uh, if you've watched the show at all, you'll pick up on a lot of these. Uh, you'll, you'll see a slot machine that was in a couple episodes. There's a camera that features in the back glass and in the game. The a little spaceman from the an episode called The Invaders is in there. The doll is in there. If you remember Living Doll, the talking doll. Robbie the robot of the of the very famous robot who's been in everything is back there. There's tons and tons of stuff back there on this thing. Uh, so clearly it was uh, the guy who put this together, propped in the game, a labor of love because they knew all this stuff. They, you know, you had to have watched the show, be a real big fan to remember some of this stuff. Also mentioned or also used uh, on the uh, playfield itself are are remnants of the actual opening of the show. If you ever watch the show, it's, I mean, some different seasons have different openings, but one of the more famous ones is that uh, is where a guy floats by like an like a scuba diver, and a door opens up, and you go through that. And there's a clock, and that stuff's that's in here. And there's also like some calculations equals MC square. That stuff's all part of the pinball machine, uh, the art of uh, the art of it. There's an actual physical working clock that's part of the machine, which I should mention is a nightmare to keep working. These things burn up. All the time. It's one of the most replaced parts of the machine. Um, this machine, I'm not going to go deep into the rule set or anything, because it's just too, it's too much to do. But it's got multiple, it's got so many ramps at the top that you can't really see the back end of the machine. It's got, as we mentioned, a working clock in it. It's got a gumball machine in it as well that you load with pinballs. And you can even have special pinballs come out of it. That will that will up your score, and there are different. There are a couple of pinballs that are made of different materials that a normal pinball would have, and so it, it makes the pinball play different. There's also a feature on the left hand side where if the ball goes up in there, you're fighting the power, which is sort of the plot of this. Uh, is that you're these aliens have came down and you're and they're called the power, and you're basically going to battle with them. Uh, this is a unique element that wasn't in the original show, much like the uh, much like the. Uh, uh, the gumball machine was not really in the, in the show. This is just, so I guess Pat figured that he would sort of make his own episode as it were. And he used the power as the antagonist in this one. But when you fight the power uh, on the left-hand side of the, uh, of the play field is a small upper play field. And you fight the power by moving the ball back and forth with two magnets that are controlled by your flipper button. It's a real, it's a bizarre effect, isn't it, Brent? Well, it's neat because it also brings into the different types of pinballs you can get. And by different types of pinballs, I mean the pinballs are made of different materials. Yeah, it's like, uh, what's uh, that thing made of? It's like... Uh, uh, ceramic, I mean, isn't ceramic. it? Ceramic, that's right. That's exactly what it is, ceramic. Uh, so it's that's a real... And it's very light. You can yeah, ultimately... It, it plays very differently. Yeah. And since it's ceramic, of course, it's not affected by magnets. Right. Which the game ha you know, the game plays off that. So it, it is actually a different experience. It's nice to see that kind of uh, innovation. Of course, this was a time when innovation was was just absolutely going crazy for pinball. 
certainly the uh, 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 hey, the second coming of pinball was in this era. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with all this going on, and we're touching, just barely touching it, because I don't want to get too deep into it, but I mean, this ultimately, you can end up with six ball multi-ball, which was, I believe, was this the first machine that ever featured that many multi-balls? It's gotta be. Uh, that's a tough one. I'd have to go back through Six for that. ball multi-ball is exceptionally rare in pinball, <laughs> I can tell you that. And this thing had tons and tons of of, of magnets underneath the play field. There was a lot going on. And this... Everything I've ever heard, and I looked like gangbusters to try to try to find the original sales price of this thing and how much it cost to manufacture. But I've always heard that this was far and away the most expensive machine ever made. Like there was nothing even in the same ballpark at the time. Uh, this was like a long a long way to go to put pinball down. So, with all the effort and all the work that went into it, uh, you need a good you need good sound. Now you couldn't get Rod Serling; he passed away in '74. And so they ultimately had a, a fill-in come in and do his voice in the game. And the guy does a pretty good job. He does a good surling. Uh, I, they did a good job with the sound effects. Now, keeping in mind that they couldn't, like, if you listen to a, a machine today, they use just samples for everything. They didn't, for this, they're still using, like, music and, and, and sound effects that are generated from a soundboard. So it's some, there are, there is digitized sound, but a lot of it's also just playing from soundboard. Uh, you may recognize the background uh, theme once you actually start the machine and you get past like the Twilight Zone theme. The, the theme that they used uh, as the in-game music, which this is a great touch, was the song Twilight Zone by the band Golden Earring. I was always a big fan of Golden Earring. Their other big, huge hit in the States was Radar Love. If you ever heard that, it was a great song. But they did Twilight Zone. And so if you listen in the background, you can hear the Twilight Zone, the song, the rock song playing in the background. The sound on this thing, I would I would say, is top top shelf, uh, which uh, uh, they did a good job on. So, with all that said, is the game any good? Uh, uh, it's ranked according to I am uh, the Internet Pinball Database. This is the number this is the number one ranked solid state pinball ever made. Uh, this is what this is according to them. It's got a score of eight point four uh, on a scale of one to ten. Uh, which is very high. Uh, I will say the number two machine, just for uh, ed your edification, would was Star Trek Next Generation, which also has a score of eight point four, but has a is a lower on the list due to the amount of reviews that have came in. So uh, it's an. I also looked this up on Pinside to see what they gave it. They give this a four point two three out of five. So a uh, pretty pretty sterling ratings on that. Now what do I think? And I'm going to get Brendan here in a second to get his thoughts. Uh, I love Twilight Zone, as you know. Uh, I'm very passionate about the show, and I've played this machine countless times. All that said, it's not one that I go back to a lot. Uh, it is a hard machine. I've always found it incredibly difficult. I've always found the shots in it tough. I've played this in virtual mode and in real life many times. And I will say the virtual pinball machine, I have about the same experience, which are the shots are difficult. The ball will, this thing can be sort of a drain. Uh, machine, if you if you uh, aren't careful, because it's it's just it's just the way it's built. There are return ramps and stuff that go right down the old pike. Uh, the rule set is it, there's a lot to take in. It's just there's a lot going on, and for me, it's just especially the upper playfield. It's just too congested. I just can't tell what's happening back there, and that to me that sort of dulls the experience. I still enjoy the machine. I still like it, but overall. I wouldn't put it in my personal say. Probably, I don't know if it'd be in my top ten. Even uh, it would probably be in my top twenty. Uh, but it, I think it's an okay, okay player. But it's a heck of a looker, and I would love to have one. Brent, what are your thoughts on this? But I know you've played it plenty of times. Oh yeah, yeah. This is a machine I I have probably more playtime physically than I do digitally. Um, the machine is good. It's the shots in it are really good. Uh, they're they're difficult. There's no question about it. Uh, I mean, there's shots through bumpers and bumper shots like that are always uh, pop bumpers are always tough shots. Um, my issue with the game, first of all, the game looks beautiful. The game sounds beautiful. Yeah. Uh, my issue with the game is the rules are complicated. Yes. Uh, it is a story based, mission based game. Yes, you can play for high score. But if you play for high score, you're not playing for uh, 
trying to progress through the game. Uh, just like most pinball machines, there are ways to get incredible scores that aren't tied with advancing the plot, quote-unquote, of the game. Uh, so you have to kind of choose what are you doing. Are you going for score or are you going for, for completion? Uh, I have never wizard-moded this game. Uh, despite oh, my, gosh. Yeah, that's despite trying, uh, it's a ton of missions. I, I th- 13 missions, I believe is what it is. Um, and some of the shots in the game were just, like I said, incredible, ho- incredibly hard. That said, uh, is this in my top five? No, my top five is super tight. Uh, is this in my top 10? Absolutely. Uh, because it has a replayability that not a lot of pinball machines possess, in that you can get better at this machine. If you want to put in the time, if you want to put in the effort to grow your skill level at a machine on both the scoring aspect and the completion aspect, both of those things are there. Uh, You know, there's no easy way to just cheese score, and there's no easy way to get through missions. So in that regard... This would be a machine I'd love to own, with the exception that I know the maintenance on this thing is a beast. Yes. Parts is. are outrageous. Yes. It's scary. Everything about it is just so above my ability that I would never... I mean, if I if a Twilight Zone fell in my lap for... You know, twenty five hundred dollars. Duh, I'm gonna I'm gonna snatch it up, <laughs> right? Yeah, but that's that, but that's not gonna happen. Yeah. Uh, because I understand my limitations. I would never be able to man- maintain a machine with this many moving parts. It's just I can't do it. Yeah. And so would I love to play it? Would I love to own one to play every day to get good at? <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, realistically, that ain't gonna happen. Yeah, and I will say, uh, this is this is renowned. I mean, if we owned one of these, we would be too poor to maintain it. That's the problem. I mean, yeah, this this is a car. This is a heavily modified machine. This is, in fact, I'd say no machine's been modded more than Twilight Zone. And you can get ludicrous in the amount of mods you can put on this thing. Absolutely. Some of the most common mods are just trying to get the clock to work. Uh, The clock burns up. The clock's cheap. You know, uh, I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff happen to these machines. And if you get into pinball on this level, like we've got, I would say one pinball machine that's somewhere in the ballpark of this in terms of its complexity, and that one scares me too. And we own that one, so I can't yeah. even think about this one. Um, I should mention uh, the Brent uh, before we shut down on this one that this pinball machine, with all of its expense and the licensing to get Twilight Zone. Oh, by the way, they had to license Rod Serling separately through his estate because uh, he Twilight Zone and Rod are two separate entities. So they had to, that's double the licensing and the amount of money it costs and all things considered. And they still ran a production run on these of just over 15,000 units. So, which is insane. They fell short of, of the Adams family by about five grand, but they still did pretty good. All things considered. Oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. If you're interested in picking one of these up, uh, but this was at one point, there was a, basically a Kickstarter to to buy the rights to put this into the pinball arcade. So if you have, which it's now gone, I don't think there's any modern legal way to own this, but if you've got the pinball arcade and you bought it back in the day, you've got it. And I will say it's a pretty good player. Uh, uh, and now if you've got future pinball or uh, virtual pinball, you can play it that way as well. Uh, the uh, If you want to buy one of these though, and Brent mentioned if one fell into your lap for 2,500 bucks, I saw a video of a guy talking about how one had fallen into his lap like it was a gift at four grand. This Twilight Zone was always at the top of the heap with with non uh, rare pinball machine money. Like it's there's two machines that are way up on the top that were also ran in spades, and they are Adam's Family and Twilight Zone. Both of them go for an astronomical sum. It's funny because Adam's Family was always I never thought it was a huge money machine, but man, it came up big time and it passed Twilight Zone. Right now, I looked at the latest auction prices for the last two years that uh, on to uh, see how this was selling. If you get the rock bottom basement price on a Twilight Zone right now, at the very bottom rung, which means the machine's probably jacked up, you're looking at six grand. Uh, and these have routinely sold 
for between nine and twelve thousand dollars. Yeah. So this is a high dollar item, a high ticket item. And when you buy it, that's before you even start to try to mod it or screw around with it or fix it or maintain it. A brutal, brutal machine, but it is it's quite a looker. And if you come across one uh, anytime, you should definitely give it a whirl. It's a lot of fun. And uh, it's one you won't soon forget, uh, the brand. We didn't have any reviews on this, which I was kind of surprised because there are ways to play it if you if you know where to look. Uh, but uh, that's okay. Uh, I, I, like I said, it's uh, pretty pretty highly regarded in terms of gameplay. Hey, it's number one according to the Internet Pinball Database, and those are the people that know. So there you go. So there you go. That was Twilight Zone Pinball. Now, Brent, you went in a different direction this week. What do you got for us? No, I, I went in the logical direction. Oh, please. You know, where I picked a video game. So, <clears throat> I went for our, our couldn't be a cartoon, had to be a, a, a live action game, and I went with Star Trek The Next Generation for the NES. Oh, gutsy. A gutsy call, sir. I did not know that this game existed, and, and after researching a little bit more, I found out that, yes, I did know this existed. So let's talk about that first, and then we'll get into the show a little bit. If you have ever played this on the Game Boy, same name, Star Trek The Next Generation, it is the exact same game, 100%. So don't don't freak out. It's the exact same game. Uh, what is this game? This was made by Absolute... or Actually, it was developed by Imagineering Incorporated, published by Absolute Entertainment in 1993. It had a dual release on the NES and the uh, Game Boy. And holy cow, let's, okay, real quick, let's get this debate out of the way, Aaron, because I know people want to hear your opinion. What is your favorite Star Trek? The original series, uh, by a long, a long distance, yeah. Okay, mine is Next Generation. Yeah. You're you a man to, of your era, though. That happens a lot. With that's amazing. the thing. Yeah. That's the thing. You have to understand. And while I will say that uh, the original series has some incredibly classic episodes, and oh, Next Generation, without doubt, has some stinkers. But Next Generation ran for a lot longer, uh, and it, it, it it's allowed to have more bad episodes because of that, right? Um, also, uh, real quick, do you have an opinion on Deep Space Nine? Yeah, it ain't Babylon 5, that's for sure. Right. Now, I will say, before, I just, I gotta, don't, you can't ask me that, to tear away. So, I watched the first four or five seasons of DS9, and it was a nothing happening, boring show. And the funny thing is, when I beamed out of that sucker, it got much better. It got that, good, that's right. So, <laughs> so, I will say, and I haven't seen all the good ones, but I've seen plenty of the boring ones. If I see another Bajoran religious ceremony, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, I have the exact same opinion on Deep Space Nine. Uh, they really hamstrung themselves when they when they were stuck to one location. I mean, yes, you have things coming in and out. I get all that. And, and it wasn't horrible. I, I'm not someone who's going to hate on Deep Space Nine. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, it definitely picked up on its intensity, we'll say, in the later in the later seasons, and not everyone stuck around for that. Uh, last on the list, the last one that I feel is worth mentioning, did you invest it all into Voyager? Listen, with Captain I, Janeway. I always give these things a shot, okay? I always do. I hated Voyager. I mean, really? I, hate, I hated that show. Yes, I hate that show, and I you don't know about more than it. Deep Space Nine. I like Enterprise way more than Voyager, and Enterprise fell off a cliff. All right, okay. So Voyager, I hated the captain. I will say, I liked the doctor. I liked the robotic doctor guy, and I liked uh, holographic. Uh, but yeah, I liked the alien cook or whatever that guy was. Whatever yeah, was I liked him. But pretty much, I thought that show was crap. Now. I have been told that that got better later on too, but I I think I watched that one for about a season, and I'm like, this is this blows, and that's when Star Trek felt right off the cliff when they put that on there. Okay, DS Nine, say what you want about it, but like, it wasn't crap. It was just sometimes it was boring. 
you know, but it wasn't, I wouldn't call it crap. Like, that show was not good, I didn't think. Okay, I, I. She was disagree. hot, I disagree in, in, in for a lot of factors on that. I think Voyager was okay. I don't think it was some, in my opinion, it's the worst of the four. Um, except it's my, it's probably better than early Deep Space Nine for me. Uh, but Deep Space Nine really turned it around. Uh, but okay, I'm going to respect your opinion. I'm not going to go into it. I personally think Voyager was okay. I hated Enterprise, but that's. The first season of Enterprise was really interesting. Like they're showing the ship, and it's a it's it's not very good. And it was it was, I thought, man, this is neat. They're having to negotiate. I like the captain. I like the crew more or less. And then the second season, they're like, well, that season didn't work. Let's load these things with guns and crap and do a bunch yeah. of time travel crap. <clears throat> El Cabong. Get exactly. That out. Time exactly. travel. No. Like and oh, by the way, the time travel aliens. There's multiple races. Right. Get that out. What was that? Crap. Yeah. That so, was crap. Okay, we're we're going way off the rails here. Uh so I looked at Next Generation and I want to state real quick, also has one of the best pinball machines of all time. You got that's that not, right. That's number not two. what we're here to discuss, but it's probably my number two or three favorite pinball machine of all time. It's better it's a better player than Twilight Zone by Absolutely. a wide margin. Yeah, I and agree. It is, that's an all time classic. It is a game that I can I can loop the wizard mode multiple times in a single game. Yeah. I also like uh, the I like the probe launching aspect of that. I always thought that was real clever. I everything that about that yeah. is great game. And it is also a beast. You should have covered that. We could have did all pinball, Brent. So oh yeah, because those always do well. So let's actually get back on track. Let's get back focused here. The next generation for the NES. You, it does one thing that's super stupid. Let's get it out of the way too. You don't actually take control of the Enterprise. You're a cadet doing a holodeck simulation of the Enterprise. Why do games do this? I it's tried. So you can't Kobayashi Maru this sucker either. You got to go in there full bore. You, I hate when games, come on, man. Unless there was some kind of contract dispute. I hate that kind of garbage. Just I'm the You don't I like after the mission where, that, the where Picard comes in and it's like you stink. It's like yeah. oh <laughs> Yeah, just I'm in control of the Enterprise. Just let it be. So okay. You take control of the Enterprise and you actually tell you have your stations. You've got your, your communications, you've got your navigation, teleporters, uh engineering and weapons and stuff. And you Everyone is at their stations, all of the crew of the Enterprise. Uh, you know, you've got Data, you've got Worf, uh, you've got uh, uh, LaForge, uh, Riker at, at, as your first officer. Yeah. All, everyone's there. Everyone who's supposed to be O'Brien. Right. O'Brien on Teleports. Everyone who's, who's supposed to be there is there. And they look good. I think they look good for Nintendo graphics. You I can mean, tell you who can they tell are. You can yeah. tell who everyone is. There's no question about it. And they stay at their stations, and you 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 kind of kick into them, right? And you say, you cycle, you drop through some menus, and you perform the function of their station. <coughs> Jordy has you repairing or boosting uh, engines and shields and weapons, that sort of stuff. You have data who is navigations who you know you plot your courses where you're supposed to go uh, and na through navigation stuff like that. Everything makes sense in that regard, and it puts you in missions. And the missions are random. And when I mean random, I mean random. They're random <laughs> missions. Yeah. You might be uh, going and defending a planet or going and defending a ship. You know, so you have to. Choose your navigation, fly there, you know, choose where you're going to go, choose how fast you're going to get there, get to that location, then power up your weapons, turn on your shields, and you got to tell Worf to do that kind of stuff, and then fly, use navigation to find the enemy, fly to it, then you take control as a pilot, you actually control the ship, shoot something down, save the day. It's incredible. <coughs> All that is incredible. Uh, or you might have where you are uh, 
you know, a, a star is collapsing next to a planet and you have to go and teleport these people off the planet. So you, again, you have to navigate there and the, everything is done through mini games. Teleporting is a mini game. Orbiting a planet is a mini game. Um, you know, of course the, the, the actual dog fighting the, is more of a game than a mini game, but everything has these aspects to it that allows you to feel like you are controlling the outcome of what you're doing. So you give the command, you know, orbit the planet. Data says, okay, all right, we're going to or, orbit this planet. Then you actually fly through rings to get the trajectory to correctly navigate the planet, and then you it locks you into orbit. A la Superman 64. <laughs> Not even close. Uh, <laughs> So that's how the game plays out, and you get different missions, and as you get better, you get go up in rank, and the missions become more complicated, and they become more difficult. You fight... I can't remember who the the, the low-class Tolerarians uh, are the low-class enemies. I and then you Ferengis right out of the gate. <laughs> oh, and Ferengis. Those yeah. are the other ones. <clears throat> and you work your way up to eventually you're fighting Klingons and Borg. Borg! Okay, they've got the Borg in Well, this. they gotta have the Borg. I mean, come on. Uh, and it's all set to missions, so it feels like episodes. They don't actually call them episodes, but that's what it feels like. Because nothing is spelled out for you in this game. You are just, here's what needs to be done, and then the ship just sets there. And it says, you know, it has to be done by Stardate, blah, blah, blah. You could just sit there for the entire time, and then you'll just fail, and then you're done. You know, it's like well, you, you know, you'll get you'll get complained at. Uh, you don't go back in rank, but it you have to get so many successful missions to go up in rank. So if you fail a mission, it's not the end of the world, but it does slow down your progress. So I really enjoyed how this played. I really enjoyed the episodic feel of things. I really enjoyed how this game does not hold your hand. It just says, here's what needs to be done. Go. You're the commander. You're supposed to be doing this crap. And if you forget where what planet you're going to, or if you forget, uh, uh, you know, what enemy you need to take down, or... Some missions, you can't just destroy the enemy. You just have to disable the enemy. And after you disable them, then you have to teleport something off of their ship or something. Awesome. That kind of stuff really sings to me. And it felt episodic. And you could just play and play and play. And actually, the game has no end. Even after you destroy the Borg, uh, which you would think would be the finale of the game, it just gives you another mission like you've done nothing. So that's kind of strange, but uh, I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed how it played. I thought the graphics were good. Uh, the sound, no, the sound's pretty crappy. Uh, I, I, I looks felt, like that opening theme. It was kind of. It was. They kind of phoned that one in. That was. Like, it was even, pretty crappy. Because NES could do some decent sound. Um, Aaron, did you have an opinion on this game? No, I don't have an opinion. Let's get out of here. Of course I've got an opinion. What an idiotic comment. Are you nuts? So, first of all, I think this is an ambitious... Listen, they said when they said that we're going to make an NES Star Trek Next Generation, they could have phoned this thing in and just put something down. But I'll give them credit. They thought to themselves, let's try to do something that doesn't suck. All right? So that right there out of the gate, there's a, you get a lot of points for difficulty. Okay? Uh, the uh, the I, Let's call it like it is. The menu system in this is cumbersome. Like it's, I mean, it's it, there's not a whole. There's only so much you can do. But I didn't like. I mean, it's not the worst, but it's you're endlessly going back and forth through menus. All right, trying to do stuff. Um, also, uh, you're right. Like this thing, I and I talked to Boat about this. It just basically, <laughs> it's like if me or you walked in the Enterprise. You know, I, I told Brett I was going to mention this. I'm going to. Me and Brett both got to do the live Las Vegas experience. Star Trek, the next generation experience. It was awesome. 
particularly the beaming on board part, which that's one of the most all-time awesome things I've ever been a part of. It was pretty good. Sadly, this ride's gone from from Vegas. But I mean, when you went on it, you walked around the Enterprise. You were you were walking. You were on the bridge. I mean, you were standing there. I mean, legitimately, you could you could go touch stuff, get in the chair if you if you if you if you could get past the guards. They had actors the whole <laughs> yeah, nine yards. Yeah. But this would have been like if we were doing that that uh, Star Trek live experience, and it just said, "Okay, Brent, you just came off uh, the street. Go get the captain's chair. We're going to battle." And you'd be like, Rrr? "Like you had no idea what's happening." So presumably, if you, I didn't look at the manual for this, but I assume it would help you a little to like figure it out. But once you kind of figure out what's going on, it's it's a pretty easy game to to understand to a certain degree. I mean, I'm not saying I was I was crushing it. The first time I played it, I sucked, but the second time I sat down and really kind of looked at it and tried to figure out how everything goes. I mean, if you get confused, you can always go to Riker. He tells you exactly what you're supposed to do. That's pretty much all he does. And yeah, he's, he's like, here's the mission. Here's where you're supposed to go. Getting to places, it could be any simpler. They say, listen, you need to go to like Scumbag Six. And you just go in and tell, plot a course for Scumbag Six. You're there. Bam. Fly through the rings. It's a bang-bang operation. Some of the mini-games are goofy, particularly the Jordy LaForge power-up-the-stuff game. That's a the egg with the X's and the, and the, and the equal signs. I wasn't. I never fully understood what I was doing when I was doing that. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it's okay. I thought it was an okay game. Uh, it was episodic, and that's something the Pinball Machine does too, where they sort of make you feel like you're playing like different episodes of the show. That's kind of cool. It looked okay. Things I didn't like were like where you actually try to combat people in space. That's no good. It, I didn't it's like rough. That. It's not just it's rough, rough, it's tedious. And that's the thing. Well, the tedious it, it's is not bad. well done. I, I you, will fully admit. And that. you have to light into these ships, man. I mean, I was, I was fighting this Ferengi, and I must have fought this guy for like an hour. And eventually, Picard just shows up. It's like, yeah, you failed. You suck. Yeah, like, you took right too the, long. Yeah, I know. Well, that's, I mean, I'd like to at least finish the mission. Uh, but uh, uh, still, I saw all kinds of different missions. It's funny. They don't give you like a hold your hand mission either at the beginning. Nope. Like, it, it's not like, hey, can you take the ship out of dry dock? No. It's like, hey, go into combat. It's like, okay. <laughs> you know, so was kind of funny. It does suck that you don't sort of get to be Picard, but I guess that's just some fanboyism there. But you're basically instant geek, you know. So I like. It. I'm kind of like you, the simulator thing. Eh. But I can understand why they did it. And, and like, to be fair to the game, the game is not presented like that. Yeah. The, once you, I mean, the manual says, "Oh, this is all holodeck stuff." Yeah. But the game doesn't like keep throwing that in your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's more like, like it's more like if. Uh, Picard was promoted up to Admiral, and you took Picard's place because it, the, Picard's like, "Here's the mission, go do it." A and so it doesn't like say, "Oh, well, that simulation you scored, blah blah blah, out of blah blah blah." It, it doesn't do that. Yeah, yeah, it's it it's it's not it doesn't beat you in the head with it. So that's not really a huge deal. I mean, if you get killed, you know, you're like, it does you don't die. So there's that, right? You the mission. That's, yeah, so you, that's when you really become obvious. But yeah, overall. I mean, for an NES effort, I mean, I swear to you, I would never have even thought this existed, if I'm honest. Uh, so I think it's kind of neat. It's not something I'd go back and play over and over just because it's kind of cumbersome. But, I mean, it's definitely playable. And if it was released at the time, and if you're a big Next Generation fan, I think this would probably be a pretty good, a pretty good hit. Now, this was released in 93, yeah. which is way late. Yeah, right? yeah. <clears throat> and that's probably why they were able to do so much. I mean, like you said, they could have easily phoned this in, threw a, a, a Star Trek label on it and been done. But I think there was at least some effort here to make you feel like you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, I, I will 100% admit the combat is clunky. Yes, that's uh, the worst part. Especially having to... You move left or up, down, left, right when you're in the piloting screen. Yeah. But you have to sl hit select... Like you're choosing another station yeah. to control. Yeah, because otherwise you can only move, move forward. Left or right. Yeah, yeah. That's that took a while to get used to it, and, and it would occasionally screw me up. And just trying to stay on these vessels to f fight them, it was this ain't wings. I mean, no, it was it, very difficult. It was yeah. very difficult. Yeah. Um, another thing that I want to mention is, as an NES game, this is okay. Okay, I, I'm not going to say this is the best thing ever. I think it's a great Star Trek game. 
especially when so many Star Trek games were more focused on let's land on this planet and explore it or let's be a point and click game. And those have their place. I'm not saying that they don't. But I enjoyed this game because you were always in the Enterprise and you were always doing Enterprise things. You you know, you were going places, disabling ships, stealing their cargo or or recovering their cargo, I should say. Uh, you were going and defending planets. You were rescuing people off of, of planets that were going to explode. I felt more like I was playing an episode as opposed to some of those other games. That said, and as an NES game, that all is sounds great. But as a Game Boy game, being able to pop in, because missions are only usually 10, 15 minutes long, right? As a Game Boy game, this would be magnificent to be able to just pick it up when you're on a car ride, play a couple le- play a couple missions when, on your way to grandma's house or whatever. And the game is 100% the exact same game. The graphic quality, the graphics, well, not colored because it's a Game Boy game. The graphics are still sharp. In fact, I think they're a little bit sharper on the Game Boy. So I thoroughly enjoyed this game. Aaron, I believe we had a Discord review on this, correct? I've got a couple of Discord reviews on this one. We'll start off with our own good buddy, John, Boat of Carshawler, who writes, This game aspires to put you in the captain's chair, and it sort of succeeds, being able to call upon the bridge crew for various tasks, and accomplishing those tasks through many games is definitely the right approach, but the incredibly bland graphics and somewhat clunky interface dial back the excitement. I tried two missions and couldn't complete either. The first, the first mission had something to do with Bajorans trying to prevent a war on Vulcan. I went to Vulcan, got in orbit, and had no idea what to do from there. He, sh- he should have asked Riker. The second mission was more straightforward. I had to protect a freighter from a Ferengi ship. Unfortunately, as I closed it, I couldn't find a radar while in pilot mode. There didn't seem to be a way to alter my speed, and I was too close to get a beat on the ship without it whizzing out of frame. Good ideas, poor execution. And a lot of that is is just he, John obviously didn't understand the controls, which are clunky. Yeah, they're clunky. Until you learn them, they are clunky. And there is no there is no battle mode radar. He's not wrong there. No, you have, you to, have go to, to go into radar, which is pointless. To look, go, you, no, no, it's not pointless. It's not pointless because you get to. Uh, see how damaged something is. No, I mean, in terms of trying to find enemy ship, you can use radar to get right up on him, but once you do that, you're on your own. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We also got a a, a review here from Pajaco, who, who writes in, uh, whilst this isn't my cup of tea as a game, I'm impressed by the sheer amount of gameplay the developers crammed in. Uh, the use of a limited number of buttons to do so much is clever and really well done. The only bit I really didn't like was the combat sections. I found that a little cumbersome switching back and forth between the scanner, main screen mode. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? I think I would have preferred to stay in scanner top-down mode, more like star control for the battles. But not a bad effort all around, 7 out of 10. I think he's right, but there's no way they would have released that like that because that sort of battling was passe at the time. Yeah. And they wanted, you know, that's they wanted like a Star Raiders style look. But I think ultimately Jocko probably nailed it. If, you, if this would have been like more like a star control style look from above, it would have been probably a lot more fun in those combats, and they would have been a lot easier to play because that's what made the game so difficult. So I'm going to go with Pajaco on that one, though. Although I would have personally, I think the absolute best thing would have been clean up the combat they had because I think it fits better with the flow of the game. But a, a top-down combat would have certainly been uh, better from a gameplay perspective but I don't think it would have fit the license as well. well you, because yeah. it yeah. put you in a perspective where you would have seen it on the show. Yeah, I I know. I, mean, I can understand why they did it that way, but I think Pajaco nailed it in terms of making it more fun. There you go. I'll have to say, this was a huge... Am I going to go back and play this a hundred times? No. Do I think if you have... If you have um, a respect for the NES... Uh, and you want to see something, a game in a gameplay that you have probably not seen before, I seriously think this fills the bill. I would certainly think this is worth emulating. If you want to buy a copy of this, it's pretty pricey. It runs really? about 30 bucks. Um, I'm surprised. I thought this would be dirt cheap. I'm surprised. Nope, it run- I guess because it- it's Star Trek. 
Yeah, if maybe you they didn't. Want, they might not have made too many. There's this late in the game. Ninety three. There's a there's it's a, that's a high possibility. And if you want one that's graded, uh, don't be that person. But if you want one that's graded, it's Listen, almost a thousand dollars. Cast judgment. What happened when it's graded? Are you kidding me? Was it? Well, did you look to see was this was this was this over with the magazines back in the day? Did anybody did anybody review it, this? It, it did get reviewed. Uh, it was six seven out of ten that area. Uh, a lot of people had the same complaints that we did uh, yep. that they felt that the uh, combat was too long and it was um, too cumbersome, but they definitely saluted the different aspects of the game and everyone said you know what this feels like you're you know part of the crew you're you're captaining the crew which i think was the whole point and i think they pulled it off and i think they nailed it perfectly very good very good i will say those reviews remind me of the various conversations i've had with you over the years long and cumbersome but i did enjoy uh this particular round very good pick the TV tie-ins. I really enjoyed it. So you know what that means, Brent. We bid adieu to TV tie-in games. Bye. Let's spin this sucker, shall we? <laughs> Good God almighty. So, now granted, there was a few hiccups last week, but I got everything sorted this time around. You mean we don't have 30 of the same piece on the wheel? Would you just shut the heck up? So, <laughs> the new piece this week, uh, this is a Pajaco here, which we just talked about him. The Comex 35, Brent. The Comex 35. Get back into the weird zone here. And our retro rewind piece will be the Sega CD, the Brent. We're going back into that. Well, yeah, Sega CD wasn't that bad. Yeah, not. What do you mean not too bad? It was great. All right, here we go. It was not great. What are you? Great? What are you, no, it wasn't not great. What are you hungry for this week? Do you have a thought? I would love some pizza. Would you? Would you just? Okay, I'm spinning the wheel. Here we go. And barrel. Round and round she goes, and the winner is, what do we got here? The winner was, oh, I will give them the Olympic Games. Just for the closing ceremonies, it will be Olympic Games. Olympic Games was suggested by Chris Folds, our good buddy, the Foldster. Uh, Brent will be good spin, uh, good yeah. spin. Thank you. That was good. Well, you know they're they're gonna say that that's a controversial spin. They're gonna say you you rigged the wheel, Aaron. You well, rigged we actually, the wheel. We talked about rigging the wheel for that, but we ultimately decided we wouldn't we wouldn't put our integrity on the line. And so luckily it worked out because we get to actually do the Olympic Games. So, our integrity is as thick as a line. Yeah. So take off, listen, take off, Tech Boys and drug test, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> So next week, now Brent, what are we doing? Any any Olympic games from any system? Is that the plan? I think the fair way to do this is anything that has an Olympic tie-in. So if there is a game that is solely about, I don't know, Olympic speed skating, that's fine. So you talk about what if it's like Springy the Olympic Spring? What are those that, gimmicks? That's if it is an Olympic thing, and it, here's the Here's where I'm gonna I'm gonna get you, Aaron. Yeah, it can't be something like California Games. Okay, no, I understand. It has to be Olympic based. I understand. You know, we just played, and I'm not gonna pick this because I think we're gonna do it on Amigas at some point. But we just played the game Summer Edition on the Amigathon, and that was some of the most fun I've had for a long time playing Olympic. So that, that I'm kind of fired up to see what else I can find. There could be some other hidden gems in there, Brent. Absolutely. So, and, and even though we are. Uh, on the tail end of the summer games, I think it's only fair to allow winter games, Olympic oh, yeah. winter yeah, games. Yeah, 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 I agree. What about, which, are there any video games that feature the Goodwill games? Ted Turner's own, when he made his own Olympics in the back in, the, I believe it was 80, uh, 1980. I wish you get into those. Hey, before we move out the door here, I wanted to touch on something, because <clears throat> we, we, much like me and Boat, we never talked about this, and I want to start talking about it. Uh, if you'll recall, we did a show uh, way back February 16th of 2020, episode 104 on the Micro B. Brent, yes. you recall the Micro B? Yeah, and it was a lot of fun. Well, uh, occasionally people that work on these old machines or programs will actually chime in. And we had a guy pop in. His name is Igmar M. Uh, I'm sure that's not his real name. But he says, I'm going to read just some of this if you'll indulge me. Again, this is on the. Uh, Micro B computer, uh, and uh, the fellow writes in. He says, "Good day. 
So right there, you know, he's not from West Virginia to say that. He goes, <laughs> I worked for Applied Technology, a.k.a. Micro B, as a contract programmer back in the early 80s, and I also ran an active user group. It was a great little Z80 or Z80-based system from our point of view. It was awesome because it was all Aussie. The keyboard was the biggest letdown as the keys were prone to fall to failing, and the technicians in the Department of Education, I think, spent most of their lives replacing key switches. There were two, <laughs> there were two main variants of the B. The first systems were indeed ROM-based, and there, and there was a bank-switching mechanism that allowed you to put in multiple ROMs in there, such as WordB, the word processor, Telecom, the serial communications program, Fourth, etc., etc. So you can actually have put a ROM in the microbeat. I have Fourth on there. We talked about interesting, fourth. yeah, kind of neat. Uh, and I like the fact that you could put ROMs in for word processors and stuff. Um, the disk systems were initially five and a quarter inch units, and then later three and a half inch. Uh, so, which is that's kind of interesting. All disks ran on CPM. So had access to the huge market of CPM software. It was a great little computer. Applied technology essentially went broke, developing the Gamma, and the brand and IP was sold, which I recall, please, it was a follow-up. Um, Ewan, who now owns Microbee, was once an employee of the original company. He bought the lifeless corpse and IP and a random collection of old cases and went on to sell uh, as part of a limited a limited edition which included the premium micro B motherboard, a custom core board. So this guy has all the scoops in here. He said, cheers to us. Nice guy. Uh, that's Ig Ingmar M. If you're interested in the micro B, uh, please check out episode 104, micro B computer. We looked at Brad Robinson games on that episode. And I'm going to try to highlight some of these going forward because they're kind of neat to hear from the actual people that were involved, Brent. Absolutely. And that's one nice thing about this show is we t since we take such a shotgun approach, I mean we're just we cover obviously anything and everything. Uh, we get those little those people that are just combing through the internet and they happen upon our show and they supply us with such valuable insight. Uh, I mean, who knew Fourth was available in the microbee? Yeah, nobody. Neat. That's who. Pretty neat. I, I like that. The Brent. Uh, any parting thoughts before we take this thing to the house? The Brent. I love everyone. We want to say hi to Orom. You want to mention that before we go? Yes. Orom is our newest uh, uh, supporter who didn't make it in the video this week. Also, I want everyone to use your keen ears and incredible eyes to see if you can find where I edited in our two new su supporters that did get in this week's video. Orom, unfortunately, uh, uh, came on board a little too late to get into this video. See if you can pick out where I slipped these edits in. It's pretty amazing. Brent's like the guy that, that worked on, that did special effects for the crow after poor Brandon uh, passed away. He had to go in and add, add in the extra scenes. That's what Brent's doing here with the video. He's adding in extra bonus footage just to pull it off. Well done, director Brent. So, Please. Eyes and ears need to be sharp. There you go. Join us next week as we take a hard, deep look at the Olympic Games. <laughs> and until then, go for the gold. Thanks for joining us today. Hello to all of our YouTube subscribers and Twitch followers. Duncan Styles, thank you for your vector graphics. Arctic, thank you for your amazing music. Would you like to help keep ARG spinning for as little as a dollar a month? You can do so at patreon.com slash ARG presents. Just like these fantastic folks. Paco6502, Kevin Bean, Super Tech Boy, David Terrence, Mr. B, C9K9, Jerry Dennington, John Fightman, Retro Algae, Andy Jones, Dave Velociraptor, Andy Craig, Rob Flack O'Hara, Jason Warns, Mitsuyama, Chris Bulls, Bernhard Lucas, Steve Rasmussen, Frodo NL, The Slow Norris, John Schaller, Carrie Heather, oh, Terry Howard, Anthony Jarvis, Olaf Hope, Rolo, Roshi, and Graham, W.O. Becky. They all have access to our Discord channel, their names caught out in the credits, and early access to special videos, and you could too. 
want to explain another credit card bill? That's okay too. You can help us out by leaving us a positive review on Spotify or Apple iTunes. We record live every Sunday, 10 a.m. EDT on Twitch. Hope to see you there.